Thank you for listening to our church podcast, where it is our joy to share helpful truths from the Bible. We pray this serves as one more tool to help develop leaders within our church and community who love and honor Jesus and reveal it by loving others. If you have any questions or comments about any of the messages, we invite you to join us on any Wednesday, 6 p.m., for a group discussion on the passages and sermons found here. Text this morning will be in Luke chapter number 16. We'll be reading verses 19 through 31. If you would please stand, I will read these verses. Luke 16, <clears throat> verses 19 through 31. Jesus says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that they may warn them that they also uh, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. He said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Father, we do pray that you would add your blessing to the reading of your word, that you would give us eyes and ears that would be open and receptive to hearing what you have to say to us through this difficult text. Pray, God, that you would teach us, instruct us this morning, and make us more like you. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, this is no doubt one of the most unique texts in all of the Bible. There's nothing like it in any of the other parables of Jesus. Uh, here in Luke 16, we get a glimpse into life after death. This text has a lot of theological significance in addition to the point Jesus was making to the Pharisees about their love of money. And so we're going to approach it a little bit differently than we typically do. Uh, we're going to go through it quickly, just explain a few details uh, so that it's all clear in your mind what's going on here. And then we're going to go back and look at implications from the text and the main point that Jesus is focusing on. To begin, let's just walk through it, get a few details sorted out. Verse 19 says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feast sumptuously every day. Uh, the first character in the story is a rich man. Uh, your Bible may have a little note there in the heading that says Divus. That's not actually his name. It's just a Latin word that means rich guy. Uh, so all we know about this guy is that he was incredibly wealthy. Jesus portrays this man as wearing purple clothing, which was imported from Tyre. Purple dye was uh, the color that royalty would wear. It was made from crushed shellfish, basically. Very expensive process to make this dye. And so if you saw someone in that day wearing purple, you knew instantly that guy is loaded. Okay, he is filthy rich. 
Not only was he wearing purple and fine linen, it says he feasted sumptuously every day. He had more than enough to eat, a huge feast every day, which was a very rare situation in Jesus' time. Uh, verse 20 says, At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores. So this is the second character in the story, and he is the opposite of the first. Uh, Lazarus is poor. He's in pain, as we see, from the mention of sores covering his body, and he's probably paralyzed. Uh, you notice there it says he was laid at the gate. Uh, the Greek word there seems to imply that, that he could not walk on his own, and so he was just dumped there. Ironically, the name Lazarus comes from the Hebrew name Eliezer, which literally means helped by God. And somebody looking at Lazarus would not have thought that this was a man that was helped by God. Verse 21 continues describing his condition by saying that Lazarus desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So you've got one character in the story that is rich. He's living lavishly, enjoying comforts and pleasures, and another man who's living a miserable life. Uh, he's, he's in poverty. He's diseased. But then in verse 22, both men die, and their condition is completely reversed. Verse 22 says, The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side, or Abraham's bosom. Uh, the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torments, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. When you read those two verses, it may seem that the poor man dies and is carried off to heaven, and the rich man dies and is uh, carried down to hell. I personally don't think either of those is true. Uh, here is a brief explanation of what I think Abraham's side and Hades refer to. Uh, the Old Testament uses one word to describe where people go when they die. Sheol, it's a Hebrew word. Uh, it is a very broad term, and there's no distinction made between Old Testament saints or, or those who were just pagans. Everybody went to Sheol. But in Sheol, it was believed by the rabbis that there were two sections. Uh, one side was a place of rest called paradise or Abraham's bosom. This is not heaven. This is just a place where uh, the souls of Old Testament saints would go after they die. It was sort of a holding place. The other side of Sheol was a place of torment and misery where those who did not follow God went when they died. This is, again, not heaven and hell per se. These are temporary holding places. Old Testament saints did not die and go instantly to heaven because Jesus had not yet paid the penalty on the cross for their sins. And so they were held at arm's length from God's presence until Jesus died on the cross and rose again, at which point uh, the wrath of God against their sin had been paid for. And then they were welcomed into the presence of God. Let me show you this in a few places in Scripture. First of all, uh, Peter says in his famous Pentecost sermon, Acts chapter 2, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he, speaking of Jesus, was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So it seems based on that verse that when Jesus died on the cross, he was not left in Hades. So he went to Hades, but God didn't abandon him there. He raised him back to life. God pulled him out at the resurrection when his spirit rejoined his physical body. Again, this does not mean that Jesus went to hell for three days. Hell is not Hades. These are not the same place. Uh, Hades is a place, in this case, of rest. There's a place in Hades that's a place of rest called paradise, Abraham's bosom. In Hades also there's a place of torment uh, where those who are not followers of God go. And so in verse uh, 43 of Luke 23, uh, this is the famous place where, where Jesus is on the cross, right? He's dying. And he says to the thief next to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Well, I thought he went to Hades. Uh, but now he says, I'm going to paradise. Again, we're not talking about heaven. We're talking about 
uh, this temporary holding place where the saints of God would go when they died. It's Abraham's bosom, it's Hades, it's paradise, whatever you want to call it. We know that Jesus is not referring to heaven because after his resurrection, he tells Mary in the garden, don't cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father. So he hasn't gone up to be with God in heaven. Uh, he went to Hades. He went down to this temporary place where the saints of the Old Testament were kept. So he went to paradise. He went to Abraham's bosom, that temporary holding place where the Old Testament saints were kept until the crucifixion. When Jesus paid their debt of sins, he went down and released them from that place. This is what Ephesians 4 says. Uh, Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. What that is saying is essentially when Jesus died, he goes down to Hades to that place where the Old Testament saints were and released them so that they could now uh, come into the presence of God. This is why in Matthew 27, uh, Matthew tells us at the, at the cross of Christ that the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks were split, the tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep, those, those who were perished, were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Uh, you read that text in the Gospels and you're wondering, what in the world is going on there? Uh, when Jesus dies on the cross, the Old Testament saints, their tombs were opened. And they were resurrected and taken up to heaven. And so when we talk about Hades, again, there's two parts of Hades. There is the part where the Old Testament saints would go, awaiting, uh, basically, when Jesus dies on the cross and they're welcomed into the presence of God. There's also a part of Hades where this rich man ends up. Uh, it's not technically hell. I, I don't really have a problem with calling it that, though, because it's clearly a place of fire and torment, just like the ultimate lake of fire. Uh, as for New Testament Christians today, after the cross, we no longer go to Abraham's bosom or paradise. We are welcomed immediately to heaven when we die. Uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that we would rather be <clears throat> away from the body <clears throat> and at home with the Lord. So when a follower of Jesus dies today, they're ushered <clears throat> instantly into the presence of God. Uh, that paradise side, that Abraham's bosom side of Hades, where the Old Testament saints were kept, has been emptied. It's been uh, cleared out. And all of those who were kept there <clears throat> are now with the Lord. So what about the other side of Hades? We've talked about the, the paradise side of rest. What about the side of Hades described in Luke 16 as a place of fire and torment? The Bible teaches that those who die apart from Christ are there now and will continue to be there until the final judgment. Again, it is a temporary holding place where they await their final sentencing. Uh, John writes in Revelation 20, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And notice verse 14, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. So all of those in Hades, uh, those who are in that place of torment, will be one day cast into the lake of fire. That is the final judgment of God. They'll be taken from Hades, that temporary holding place. They will stand before God's judgment seat, and they will be condemned sentenced to eternity in the lake of fire. So, to recap, in the New Testament, 
Uh, Hades is the Greek word, by the way. The English is simply transliterating it, putting English letters to it. They're not translating it here. Uh, Hades is a place uh, that just refers to what the Old Testament would call Sheol. If you have a different translation, your Bible in Luke 16 may say hell. Again, I don't really have a problem with that because both are a place of torment and fire. So I, I don't think it's, it's just being more precise to call it Hades. Uh, but uh, let's get back to our, our, our text here. Those are just some technicalities I wanted to explain so you understand what's going on here. Verse 22, uh, the poor man died. He was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. So he's in the paradise side, the side of rest. The rich man died. He was buried and he goes uh, into Hades, the place of torment. And he lifts up his eyes and he sees Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So the rich man is in Hades. He's in this place of torment. He's awaiting his final judgment when he will be cast into the lake of fire. <clears throat> Let's consider now, as we look over these next few verses, what we can learn about hell uh, from this text. We begin with verse 23, where we are told, that hell is a place of conscious punishment. Again, I'm using the term hell. If you want to call it Hades, that's fine. Either one is, is fine with me. Verse 23, in Hades, or in hell, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off. You notice that phrase, he lifted up his eyes, which simply means he came to an awareness. He dies, and then he suddenly becomes aware of the fact that he is in hell. And so we learn from that that those in hell are conscious. Notice next that those in hell are in unending torment. Verse 24, he calls out, saying, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. He is in such torment that he begs Abraham to send Lazarus, just to, to dip the tip of his finger in water and let that drop cool his tongue. This is simply showing us with a vivid image the misery of the one who is in hell. It is continuous, conscious agony. Abraham responds in verse 25, saying, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. We're reminded here of the reversal of fortunes. There was a time when Lazarus longed for just a crumb from the rich man's table. Now the rich man is longing for just a drop of water. The next thing that we learn about hell is that those in hell have no hope of escape. Abraham continues in verse 26 to say, Besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. The rich man has no way out, no way of being helped. This is his punishment forever. Now, I want to back up a minute and ask, uh, what does this have to do with what Jesus has been talking about in this context? Remember, this section of Luke 16 is all about money. Uh, he's talking to the Pharisees that scoffed at his teaching on finances. And this parable is part of the section where he's rebuking their view of money. The first lesson I think we need to learn here is that rich people are not necessarily blessed by God. The Pharisees believed that if someone was wealthy in this life, uh, that was a sign that God had favored them and was blessing them. A lot of preachers tend to have the same mentality today, right? If you're truly following God, you're going to be wealthy and prosperous and healthy and all of that. Uh, that is not found in Scripture. There are some who are rich and, and, and seemingly having a great blessed life now, but Jesus shows us in this parable they will be judged. They'll wake up one day in hell. And there are some who are poor and miserable in this life, like Lazarus, who will be welcomed into God's presence. So prosperity in this life doesn't always mean that one has God's blessing and favor. 
But it's also not true to say that all rich people are going to be judged by God. A very simplistic reading of this text might lead you to think, okay, uh, poor people go to heaven, rich people go to hell. Uh, that's not necessarily true either. Uh, for example, you notice it says Lazarus goes to Abraham's side. Well, who was Abraham? Genesis 13, 2 tells us of Abraham that he was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. And so this is a man that was very wealthy in life, and he ends up in paradise. He's not in torment like the rich man. So if the lesson in Luke 16 is simply that rich people go to hell, poor people go to heaven, what do we do with Abraham, who was a very rich man? Clearly, that's not Jesus' point here. The point is this. Uh, those two extremes are both wrong. One says rich people are, are, are rich because God's blessing them, and so they're going to be in his presence when they die. Luke 16 tells us that's not always the case. The other view says rich people are all, all going to face God's judgment in hell. That's also not the case. The issue is not one's wealth. The issue is one's master. Riches only send you to hell if they keep you from following Jesus. Remember, Jesus had said a few verses earlier in this very same context, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The rich man in this parable is a picture of a servant of money. He lived lavishly. He spent his money on comforts and pleasures for himself. He wasn't interested in helping a poor beggar like Lazarus. He wasn't using his money to help others. He wasn't being a faithful manager of what God had entrusted to him. In other words, he wasn't serving God. He was serving himself. And Jesus is warning us here to think about our eternity. Each one of us will lift up our eyes either in heaven or in hell. We will experience the joys of the presence of God or the torment of the judgment of God. And the choice is ours. Like the, the dishonest manager earlier in Luke 16, we have this brief window of opportunity in which our eternal destiny will be determined. And so the question is, what will you do with Jesus? Will you reject him like the Pharisees did or will you serve him? Uh, next, notice in verse 27 that how you respond to Scripture is the determining factor. The rich man is in hell. He realizes that he's hopeless. And so he says to Abraham in verse 27, I beg you, Father, to send him, send Lazarus to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Uh, Moses and the prophets is simply a reference to Scripture. The Old Testament is often uh, referred to that way. Moses, the, the law and the prophets, Moses and the prophets. Jesus is telling us that what determines our eternal destiny is how we respond to Scripture. This is exactly what Jesus had taught back in chapter 8 of Luke, the parable of the sower, where he says, A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it, it withered away, because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. Some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. When his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he goes on to explain in verse 11, Now this, the parable is this, The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard, heard the word of God. And the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. The ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, 
But these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. As for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares, the riches, and pleasures of this life, and their fruit does not mature. This is the rich man in Luke 16. He's been so caught up in riches and pleasures of this life that he hasn't thought about the life to come. Verse 15, as for that good soil, they are those who, hearing the word of God, hold, fast, uh, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. How you respond to the word of God makes all the difference. It is the difference between heaven and hell. And Abraham says here in this parable, which essentially means Jesus is saying, uh, there is no other way of salvation. The rich man had asked him, could Lazarus come back from the dead and, and warn my brothers of this judgment in hell? Abraham said, no, they have the Bible. Verse 30, the rich man responds, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, then they will repent. Uh, they're not going to listen to the Bible, but if somebody rises from the dead, they'll repent. By the way, just notice the rich man here says they will repent. He understood that repentance is required in salvation. This guy had a good theology of, of what it takes to, to avoid God's judgment. Verse 31, Abraham responds to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Uh, the lesson here is straightforward. The God who made the universe has spoken in Scripture, and how we respond to that revelation of God determines our eternal destiny. The Pharisees to whom Jesus is speaking had rejected the word of God repeatedly. And Jesus tells them, if you won't listen to scripture, uh, they won't even repent if someone should rise from the dead. Now, is that really true? Uh, would the Pharisees not repent if someone was raised from the dead? Uh, we all know the answer to that, of course, because someone was raised from the dead and they did not repent. But I think here Jesus is making a specific connection. Uh, many have asked, you know, this is the only parable in all of Jesus' teachings where someone has a name. Uh, it's, it's interesting. None of his other parables does a character have a name. Normally it's just there was a man. There was a man who had two sons. Uh, never is someone given a name. But here we do have someone. This poor man is named Lazarus. Well, why would he be named Lazarus? I think he is making here a connection between this teaching and John 11, the, the famous raising of Lazarus. Because there was another man named Lazarus in the New Testament, and Jesus did raise him from the dead. He was buried. He, he, he died. He was buried for four days. Jesus shows up and raises Lazarus from the dead. And now here's the question. Was that enough to cause the Pharisees to repent? Let's look at their reaction. John 11, uh, in verse 39, you see Jesus comes to the tomb of Lazarus, who's been dead again for four days. And he says, take away the stone. Uh, Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Do I, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out. His hands and feet were bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council 
and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. They don't doubt that he raised him from the dead. Uh, they understand that this miracle was real, that Jesus had, in fact, raised Lazarus from the dead. Verse 48, they continue, If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Verse 53, So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. If they won't repent by hearing the scriptures, neither will they if one rises from the dead. And the Pharisees proved that point. They didn't repent when Lazarus was raised. Instead, they plotted how they could kill the one who raised him. Uh, this past week, I was reading through a, a Twitter conversation, which is always fun, uh, with a pastor and an atheist, uh, a pastor friend of mine in North Carolina and a, uh, an atheist lady. They were going back and forth, and he was being very patient and kind. They were trying to uh, convince her that, that Scripture is true, that Jesus did rise from the dead. And uh, they went back and forth. He kept presenting evidence uh, for the veracity, the accuracy of Scripture, uh, for the historical evidence of Jesus' resurrection. And, and this lady just kept denying it. Uh, she would raise an objection, the pastor would answer it, and then she would just raise another objection. Finally, the pastor asked her this question. What would it take to convince you? You won't believe Scripture. You deny all of the historical evidence. What would it take for you to accept that Jesus ro rose from the dead? And uh, here was her answer. I'm going to quote, but I'll take out some of the insults that she threw in there. Uh, here's the answer to that question. What would it take to cause you to believe? She said, nothing. I have no need to follow a cult in order to have fulfillment. Researching the deep origins of the universe and biological molecules is much more satisfying. Uh, what that does is demonstrate to us the truth of Luke 16. If they won't listen to scripture, nothing will convince them. No amount of evidence will cause them to repent if they reject the word of God. So let's wrap up with a few thoughts. We're going to put together everything we've seen so far uh, and, and look at a few implications from this text. First of all, Jesus warned repeatedly of the judgment after death. We cannot claim to be followers of Jesus and reject his clear teaching on the subject of eternal punishment. Jesus talked more about hell than he did heaven. Many today want to claim that God would never send someone to hell. Do you think you know more about God than Jesus? He's the one who taught us about hell more than anybody else in all of Scripture. And this shouldn't really be surprising to us, because if, he if hell is real, we would expect that Jesus would warn us about it. If there really is a judgment coming to those who live apart from Christ, the most loving thing that Jesus could do is warn us and plead with us not to go there, and that's exactly what he does. You remember back in chapter 10 of Luke, Jesus had said, Woe to you, Chorazin! A woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. Jesus there is very clearly warning of this coming judgment for those who had rejected his message. Chapter 12, again, Jesus warned of the coming judgment, saying, I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Again in chapter 13, there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all 
others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Uh, on this 20-year memorial of 9-11, let me remind you of the spiritual lesson that we all ought to take away from such a tragedy. Everyone is going to die, and none of us knows when that will happen. Those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell, they had no idea that that would be their last day of life. The 3,000 people who died in the attacks of 9-11, likewise, had no idea that it would be their last day. Death is a reality for every one of us, and none of us knows when it's going to come. And so we should be reminded whenever someone dies that our day is coming too. We need to be prepared for that day. And Jesus says here explicitly, unless you repent, you will all perish. Repent of your sins now and follow Christ while you have the chance. Hell is real. And Jesus loves us so much that he repeatedly warns us about it. Again, in chapter 13, he says, In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves cast out. He repeatedly, over and over, warns us about the reality of the coming judgment of God. He urges us to repent while we can. The second important reminder in this text is that our response to the word of God is what determines our eternity. And so what will be your response to God's revelation in Scripture? As we've studied uh, earlier this morning in our Bible study hour, God the Father has sent Jesus to die for your sins. He offers you new life uh, following him. If you'll repent and trust in Christ, he promises to forgive your sins and give you eternal life. And the question is, will you accept that offer? There is an expiration date. You must repent now because in hell it is too late. Uh, don't fall into the trap of believing that hell isn't real. Uh, don't read Luke 16 and think, well, uh, that's just a story. It's not, taking about, not talking about a real place. Jesus says, if you reject the Bible, you have no hope. Don't buy into the lie that God wouldn't send people to hell. God is the one who told us that he does. God is the one who warned us about hell. And God is the one who came and died for you to escape hell. Don't be so foolish as to assume that hell isn't real. Anytime somebody tells me that they don't believe God would send someone to hell, I always ask, what about Hitler? And then there's a pause. Okay, maybe God will send Hitler to hell. Uh, but see, what that shows us is uh, hell is for really bad people, we think, and heaven is for the good people. The question then is, where is that line drawn? I would feel bad for the guy who is just barely not good enough to make it into heaven. Uh, where do we draw those lines? Uh, other people have come up with this notion of purgatory, some sort of temporary hell. So the really good people go to heaven, the Hitlers go to hell forever. The rest of us go to purgatory for a while, depending on how many sins we've committed, and then eventually we make it to heaven in the end. Uh, none of that's in the Bible. Uh, people have come up with all of that because we're comparing ourselves to each other. And compared to the worst of humanity, I seem like a really great person. That's not how God judges us. The standard isn't average goodness. Uh, God doesn't compare us to Hitler and say, okay, you seem pretty good. The standard is God's laws, which we have all violated. All of us have sinned. And God hates sin. He is a just judge and he will punish sin. But Jesus took the wrath of God on himself when he laid his life down on the cross so that you don't have to face God's judgment. If you will repent of your sins and follow Christ in this life, you can enter his presence as his child. One final point here. Uh, remember the context of this parable. We each have a choice to make. We will either serve God or live for ourselves. And Jesus says we cannot do both. Uh, the rich man in the parable chose to live for now. He chose to enjoy uh, the wealth, the feasting every day. 
uh, the living lavishly. He chose the pleasures of this life instead of living for God. And Jesus is warning the Pharisees of his day and us here today, don't make that same mistake. Remember Jesus' words in verse 13, no servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. There's only two options. You can serve God or you can serve money. You can, you can live for God or you can live for yourself. Eternity in hell is not worth whatever pleasures and comforts you may achieve by living for yourself in this life. Whatever it is that you have to give up to serve Jesus, it will be worth it in the end. Moses understood this. Uh, one final text here, Hebrews, I'm sorry, two more. Hebrews 11 verse 24 says, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Uh, Moses had a decision to make. If you're familiar with the story in Exodus, Moses was raised as, uh, as the child of Pharaoh's daughter. And so he lived a very rich and comfortable life, but then he had a choice to make. He would either choose, choose to align himself with Pharaoh in Egypt and go on living in pleasures and comforts and riches, or he would choose to be among God's people and give up the, the fleeting pleasures of sin. And Moses made the choice to be mistreated along with the rest of God's people in Egypt. And here's why. Verse 26. He did this because he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Moses had an eternal perspective on life. He didn't just pick what was most pleasurable now. He asked, how long does it last? And he chose to live a life of devotion to God because he was thinking about eternity. And so now we're back to the very beginning of Luke 16. You remember the dishonest manager? He had that small window of opportunity to set himself up in the future. And Jesus is urging us to do that. Think about eternity. You don't want to experience God's judgment forever. So serve him now. Repent now and be rewarded then. Please don't leave this morning without listening and responding to the word of God. Isaiah 55, 6, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Hear the invitation of God to you today. If you will repent of your sins, if you will turn to Christ, he promises that you will be forgiven. We hope the message you just heard was helpful to you. It means a lot to us that you would join us for this podcast. For more information about our church and meeting times, visit lbcmiller.com or call us at 219-885-9303. We would love to hear from you.